Well, good morning. Glad you're here with us. If you're watching online, wherever you are, glad you're doing that. And, and you folks down at F3, glad you are uh, down there and not up here, I guess. That's one way to put it. It was 50 years ago last spring, 50 years ago, 1972, spring of 72, I was, I was a junior in high school sitting in Mrs. Alexander's study hall. Um, and, I, and, and you could just see the panic becoming on her face. I grew up in a small rural community, so there were 62 boys in our entire high school. Okay, so 62 guys. And it seemed like that day, all 62 guys were in Mrs. Alexander's study hall. And it was starting to get out of hand. Spitballs were flying. Um, one guy had a cigarette lighter lighting a, a metal chair where another friend was sitting and unbeknownst to him it was heating up and the noise was starting to crescendo and you can just see it getting out of hand, the panic in this poor gal's eyes. And then an eerie calm hit the place and I glanced back, the back of the study hall was this huge door with a huge window that uh, connected the study hall to the math room. And there he was, our principal and math teacher, Bob Tushla. And there he was, framed in that window, standing there, his imposing figure, with his four-foot T-square that he held like an unsheathed Excalibur or a, a lightsaber of a venerated Jedi. And instant calm. And all he did just was stand there holding his T-square, looking in that glass window, and 62 boys in a high school, um, order uh, came instantly. It was the spring of A.D. 33. It was Jerusalem, and things were getting out of hand real quick. Um, take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Uh, Jesus' disciples were causing more than just a little stir in Jerusalem. We know by now from uh, Peter's two sermons, uh, 3,000 people following Jesus after one of the sermons, 5,000 men, uh, there's 8,000, let alone you know, who knows how many other people. Um, we don't know for sure the size of Jerusalem. Some would say is few is maybe 50, 60,000, some say maybe 100, 120,000 in Jerusalem, but you're talking about 10, maybe 15,000 people were following Christ, and now the disciples were adding healings to the whole thing, and man, things were getting out of hand. Chapter 5, verse 14, it says this, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets, laid them out on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least maybe his shadow might fall on any of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Can you see this thing unfold? And it wasn't that people were being healed when his shadow, but they just, there was such, um, such an excitement of what was going on uh, you got thousands of people now getting all um, thrilled over what was happening. And so the spiritual leaders of Judaism realized that drastic 
times called for drastic measures. The Jewish high priest, the most powerful person in Judaism, knew that the line, the red line in Jerusalem had been crossed, and things had to happen. Um, look at verse 17. Acts chapter 5, verse 17. So the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is, of the sect of the Sadducees. Uh, and remember, I've mentioned this before, there was various sects of Judaism. There was Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection or, or the kind of the supernatural realm, angels and things like that. And then there were the Pharisees who were the teachers of the law. And they were, and they were kind of all brought together in their animosity and hatred about Jesus. Um, well, it says they laid hands on the apostles and they put them in jail. Now, again, I'm not going to belabor this. We've talked about this, but Annas was the, was the high priest emeritus. He had been appointed decades before by the Romans to be the, the chief head muckamuck of Judaism, and then he'd passed on that high priesthood to five sons, a grandson, and the current high priest was a guy by the name of Caiaphas, but it was this cabal of, of, uh, of, uh, of spiritually regenerate, really, um, leaders of Judaism, all getting wealthy at the hands of the people, even of, of lower priests who they would rob them even of their tithes and stuff. Annas and his, his aristocratic Jewish high priestly family had gotten extremely powerful and rich. And just a few weeks before, they collude with the, with the uh, Romans to put Jesus on the cross. Very, very powerful family. And now they see what's happening in Jerusalem. Thousands of people are following after Jesus. These, these renegade Galileans and followers of Jesus, these disciples of Jesus are, are, are doing these healings and, and the commotion is, increases, is increasing. And so they say, we've got, we got to do something. And they grab them and they stick them in jail. That's the context. Of course, it didn't last long. Keep reading verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison. And isn't that ironic? The Sadducees didn't even believe in angels. But an angel opened the gates of the prison, taking them out. He said, go stand and speak to the people in the temple. This whole message of life. Because all that the world offers is a message of death. But the message of Jesus is a message of life. And he, so the angel releases him. This prison break takes place. Upon hearing this, they entered then into the temple about daybreak, and they obediently begin to teach the message of life. God had his hand on the early church, and nothing was going to get in the way of that. Amazing things taking place that God unfolds his plan. Well, the, this, the news of this miraculous prison break hadn't reached uh, the high priest and the, this gathering of, uh, of imposing religious leaders. It's called the Sanhedrin, 71 leaders of a mix of Sadducees and Pharisees that, that held control over Judaism. They hadn't heard about this yet, and we keep reading. Look at verse um, 21. Um, now when, last part of verse 21, now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together. That's that Sanhedrin gathering of Jewish leaders. Even all the senate of the sons of Israel. And they sent orders to the prison house for them to 
you know, bring in the, the disciples of Jesus, verse 22. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. They returned and reported back, and they said in verse 23, we found the prison house locked quite securely. The guards were standing at the doors, but when we opened it up, we found there was no one inside. Well, when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would have come of this. And then someone comes, verse 25, and reported them and says, the men who, who you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. And that's when the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people and um, they didn't want to be stoned. Um, this was... Um, this was a real embarrassment. In verse 27, when they had brought them, they stood them right there before the council, and the high priest began to, to question them. Drastic measures call for, uh, drastic times call for drastic measures. And so once again, here's Peter and the disciples finding themselves before this, this, uh, these, these venerated leaders of Judaism, these corrupt officials, Standing there, the power elite, the aristocracy of, of Judaism, all 71 of them, and there is Peter and James and John and the disciples once again standing before them. Except it was a little different this time. Because they were standing there now having violated the previous command. Don't speak anymore of this name. But they went out and did it anyway. Not only that, there are now thousands and thousands of people that the healings are taking place. This is a whole new ball game, and these guys are now in really, really hot water with the Sanhedrin. And there they are. Um, and so verse 27b, it says, The high priest questioned them and said, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet... You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and to bring this man's blood upon us. By the way, notice that they can't even mention the name Jesus. They, th th this name, this, this man, and you're intending to bring his blood upon us. And what, what is happening? Well, their nice little religious scam that had been going on for decades, it was, it was imploding. It was falling apart right before their eyes. These disciples, these followers of Jesus, were drawing masses of people, and they could see their little scumbag empire just start dissolving. Um, dangerous times. Notice they said this teaching, your teaching is bringing this man's blood upon us. Because they were out there saying, you've crucified him. You put him to death. Now, how ironic, and just to look back at Matthew 27, when, when Jesus was standing before Pilate, just, just a few weeks before, it says, when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water, washed his hand in front of the crowd, and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. Remember that story? He washes his hand, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And all the people said, his blood shall be upon us. We'll, we'll, we'll own it. His blood will be upon us and upon our children. And how interesting that now, just a few weeks later, the religious leaders are saying, you're, you're, you're putting this guy's blood upon us. 
Well, that's what you wanted. That's what you said. And that's when Peter gets up. Look at verse 29. The apostles and Peter, they answered and they said this, we must obey God rather than men. And then the next sentence is this packaged, succinct presentation of, of Peter. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. And he's the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. I mean, you can't package that message any better. In just a few short sentences, you nailed him to a cross. Jesus died, but God raised him to life, the resurrection. He is alive, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father in glory, and we're witnesses to this. And so is the Holy Spirit of God. Short, sweet, compact. You know, we looked at uh, in chapter 4 how after the first time that they had been um, chastened by the religious leaders and told and, and released after telling them don't speak anymore of this name, they went back to their friends and companions and they had a prayer meeting. Remember that? And what did they pray for? They prayed for boldness. And man, are they getting it here like in abundance. Boldness. Um, Notice also, what a great example, I think, of, of, of civil disobedience. We have it right here, right? Um, Jesus had told them, I want you to go, go and be my witnesses. Then he, just before he ascended in heaven, right? He gave them that great commission. Go and witness to me. The angel had released them that, that night before. And he said, go and proclaim the whole message of this life. And now the religious leaders, the high priests and all the, the head leaders are saying, don't speak of this name anymore. Okay, you've got kind of two opposing things here. And what does Peter say? We're going to obey God, not men. And though these were religious leaders, I think it's a great example of, of, of civil disobedience. Here's what God said to do. Here's what the authorities are saying to do. This is a no-brainer. We obey God. Um, it's probably a whole another sermon by itself, but um, uh, when we were studying Romans, the book of Romans, a couple of years ago, we were in Romans 13, and Romans 13 tells us to obey, submit to the, 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 the authorities, the civil authorities over us. Um, if you weren't here at that time, you can go online. Dennis McNutt actually preached that passage in Romans 30, did a fabulous job. But the basic principle is we are to obey civil authorities until it becomes a sin to obey. We submit to civil authorities until it becomes sin, until it contradicts what God's Word directly says. In this situation, God said this, the authorities are saying this, we must obey God rather than man. And with boldness, he stood up, and that's what he said. Um, and, and like I said, it's a, probably another whole sermon, and, and, uh, but I, 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 think, I think we need to tack some of that down in our evangelical Christianity. 
I think there's some confusion. I just read a book recently by a, a respected Christian author. Um, he published it just before the midterm elections. It's a thin little book. And it was disturbing to me. Um, he talked about Diedrich Bonhoeffer, and I'm kind of getting off on a tangent here, but that's okay. Um, what's new, right? Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, World War II, plotted against Hitler, um, and it, it ended up costing Bonhoeffer's life. Um, but this guy in this, in this book, this respected evangelical author, said that we as Christians need to, basically he was saying we need to do kind of crazy things. We need to be willing to do the unthinkable, knowing that God would, will probably forget, will forgive us anyway. And, and you read that stuff, and it's, it's brand new in print, that Christians should rise up and do some stuff that would violate God's heart and will. It's kind of like a Joseph Fletcherianism, uh, the end justifies the means type of thing. And this is stuff that's kind of being out there in the Christian circles today. And, you know, we realize this world is, is sick. This country is, we're seeing this slide into an abyss. But we should never stop acting like Jesus' people. And we, we need to be cautious of that. Civil disobedience, nothing wrong with it. When the civil authorities are telling us to do something that God's word directly says don't do. Or to, to not do something God's word directly says. And by the way, notice that when they arrested Peter and John, they didn't fight this, or the, the disciples. There's no violence. They were submissive to the authorities. Romans 13. They went along and were submissive. But we are going to obey God and we're not going to obey men. When human authorities contradict God's authority, we go with God. That's a simple thing. Well, so he stands up with this confidence and this boldness and you can imagine, back in verse 17, it says, what's going on in the minds and the hearts of these religious leaders? It says they are filled with jealousy. They are seething with jealous rage, right? And verse 33 says, and when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they intended to kill him. That was it. Now, what do you think was going through Peter's mind and heart and the, these disciples? There they are. Standing before, they, they had to be seeing the panic, and not just a panic on the faces of the Sanhedrin, but the seething rage. Um, they knew they could, it, life was, could be over for them right now. What's going through their mind, I wonder? Well, I have a sneaky suspicion what was going through their mind. Because just a few months before, Jesus had taught them what to do in this situation. So let's go to Luke chapter 12 for a few moments. Luke chapter 12 uh, to a passage that I glanced at um, a couple weeks ago. But Luke chapter 12, um, again, an event that, uh, events that took place just a few months before that I don't think was lost on the disciples as they're standing there before the Sanhedrin and may be close to death. Luke chapter 12. In fact, let's back up two verses. Chapter 11 of Luke, verse 53, it says, And when he left there, when Jesus left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile 
to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Now, in the context, Jesus has been spewing forth um, condemnation against the religious officials. Woe to you, scribes and fairies, you, you den of iniquity, you brood of vipers, you dead man, you tombs full of dead men's bones. Woe to you. It didn't sit well, and they're now getting hostile towards Jesus, plotting against him. That's the context. Now, chapter 12, verse 1. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began to say to his disciples, he turns to his disciples and he said, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware of the leaven of Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, we've talked about that term many times over the years. In fact, Caleb, a couple weeks ago in his sermon, referred to it. It's a, it's a, that, that word, hypocrites, uh, hypocrisy, it comes out of a classical Greek um, culture of the theater. And it's a word that means um, kind of a play actor. So what, what, what you saw in the theater wasn't the real person. He was speaking from behind a mask. So if, it was a, if he was playing the part of a villain, he had the villain mask on and, and so on and so forth. He was, uh, the, 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 they were play actors. They weren't the, the, you weren't seeing the real thing. You were seeing what was simply the, the front, the mask. And of course, that word then was carried over in a negative way. You hypocrite. You're just, you're, you're, you're a fake. You're a phony. And Jesus is saying, hey, beware of those religious leaders who just are, they're, they're a fake it's, it's just, they're, they're all their pomp and religious, religiosity, it's, it's a mere facade. Um, they, are, they are spiritually dead. And one day, Jesus says, that mask is going to drop. Look at verse 2. But there's nothing covered up that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known, Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. What you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Beware of the mask people, but rest assured those masks are going to drop one day, and the real is going to be shown. And then Jesus, starting in verse 4, gives his disciples some really, really important advice. Now, again, I think this is just months before what we read in Acts took place. So look at verse 4. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not the five sparrows sold for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten by God, before God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear you are more valuable than many sparrows. Don't fear those who kill the body. In other words, don't fear um, what humans can do to you. Uh, the fear of, of, of people's impression of you, the, the fear of people's opinion about you. Jesus said, watch out for the leaven of hypocrisy. I mean, that fear will lead you to begin talking from behind a mask. It'll make you accommodate the, the, the crowds of people to, to do and say what, what is more comfortable to do and say. Don't fear them. 
Because when you fear what people say about you or do to you, you are ripe for the sin of hypocrisy. Um, now we can broaden that into anything that we might fear, not just people, but circumstances, situations of life, the loss of a job, the loss of a relationship. Fear. It was fear that was motivating the religious leaders to do and say what they were doing, hostility towards Jesus. What were they fearing? What that their nice little religious scam, their, their little aristocracy of, of religious um, power was going to be lost. Don't fear. Only fear Him. I think one of the greatest concerns of, uh, of Christianity going on is this, is this temptation to conform, outward conformity to the world because we're afraid of what that world out there might think of us. So, so we have to be very careful, and that's a mindset. We, and it's causing us to be squeezed into the world's way of thinking. So we're not being bold in our witness to, to Christ. It's the camouflage syndrome, right? We're just going to blend in with the society around us. We become, you know, part of the Secret Service Christian Corps. Um, and, and, you know, not sharing what is really truth because we're afraid that if we share truth, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that, that people, will, the world will think ill of us. Folks, the world thinks ill of us anyway. There is growing hatred of, against God and his people, if you haven't noticed, at least in this country. And um, when we succumb to that external pressure, uh, we, are in, we are in danger of jeopardizing internal principles, who we really are and what we really believe, and so we, we speak from behind a mask. We want to be accommodating. We want to be tolerant of the views out there. We don't want to come across like hardened Bible thumpers. And, and you know, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, and I don't want to be mistaken. I mean, let's not be offensive to people and obnoxious, right? I mean, uh, Christians seem to be able to do that quite well. I don't know where they, some of these news outlets get these Christians, and they put them, you know, in front of the cameras like, well, is that the best you could have picked? Because they are so obnoxious. They are so offensive. And, you know, where's the love of Jesus in this whole thing? But for Pete's sake, let's not be hypocrites. Let's speak truth. Let's learn how to engage people with truth and not back away and be ashamed of it. You know, boldness, Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Now, look at verse 6 and 7 again, because right after Jesus says, fear him, don't fear this out here, the, the horizontal. Connect with the vertical. Fear him. But then right after that, verse 6, he says, hey, are not five sparrows sold for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God? The very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear. Wait, wait a minute, he just told us to fear. And now you're telling us don't fear. What, what's, what's, what is Jesus saying here? It's a very simple principle. Reverence God because he is the supreme ultimate authority. He stands far above any civil religious authority, anything you can fear down on this plane. Fear him, respect and honor and reverence him. But as you do that, understand that you're honoring and respecting and fearing the one who cares for you infinitely. That he knows when a sparrow falls, 
Don't you think he understands and cares for you? He's got the hairs of your head numbered. He knows everything about you. Folks, there's not one of us in this room who has not done something this week that if it was exposed right now, if we played it on the screen right here, every one of us in this room, if it played some thought, some action, something we did maybe in secret, and we put it on the screen right now, we would be utterly embarrassed and ashamed. Well, at least I would. I don't know how you are, pious folk that you are. But God already knows that. He knows that about us. And he loves us intimately. His love is incomprehensible. And if a sparrow falls, don't you think he cares for us? So fear him, the one who loves you so perfectly. That's the power of grace. Well, in the next couple of verses, verse 8 and following, Jesus warns that fearing men and living this hypocritical lie can have grave consequences. Look at verse 8. He says, and I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And then he says this, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now we could spend a whole sermon, I think, on this little phrase. I'm not. Um, you know, Jesus is basically saying here, how can we fear men and live hypocritical lives to gain the praise of men when we realize how much Jesus loves us, God loves us, and he will praise us before the angels? You know, let's, let's, let's figure this out. Do you want the praise and accolades of men and compromise your beliefs? Or wait and get the praise of God before the angels because you've stood for truth. Now, he doesn't mean about going to heaven. and He's talking about his followers are going to be rewarded who stand for him and give testimony of him before a watching world that is in hatred against Christ, against God. But it's at verse 10, he who blasphemes us against the, he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. And let me just summarize briefly here. I think Jesus is specifically referring that to, in the context, to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders of Israel. I think it's unique to that context. I mean, that's pretty serious stuff, right? If you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it's not going to be forgiven. And I find it interesting, the Apostle Paul and John and Peter and the epistles, they never talk about this. If it's that important, you think it would have kind of shown up in Paul and Peter and John's writings. It's unique here, and I think Jesus is saying, look, you Jewish leaders out there, you people in the background who are listening to me talk to my friends, the disciples, you've rejected John the Baptist and the, and the testimony of the Holy Spirit that came through John the Baptist. You've rejected my testimony, empowered by the Holy Spirit. I don't say anything on my own initiative, only as God gives me, and you've rejected it. You are rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit and you're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. When Peter in chapter 5 was standing before the Sanhedrin, he said, we are witnesses to these things as is also the Holy Spirit. You've rejected the message of John the Baptist. You've rejected my message. And when we get to Acts chapter 7, when 
this first Christian is martyred, Stephen. We'll get there in a, in a, a number of weeks. Stephen, in his testimony before that very same group, in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, says, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit, and boom, that was it, and they killed him. And Jesus is saying, you're resisting the Holy Spirit. You're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. You've crossed the line, and there is no forgiveness for that because the Holy Spirit points people to Jesus, and when you reject that, you reject your only hope. Um, now we could talk more about that. Jesus wraps up this little teaching to his disciples, though, in verses 11 and 12, when he says, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you're to speak in your defense or what you're to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you're to say. And what is Jesus saying? Don't fear those that you're going to stand before. Don't fear those who, who can kill the body. And they're going to do that. They're going to torture you. They're going to, they're going to ultimately kill you. Peter, you're going, to, you're going to die, he tells them after he meets with them after the resurrection. But don't fear them. Trust me. In that hour, the Holy Spirit will give you the power, will give you the words to say, trust me. Live in dependency upon the Holy Spirit. And what an important message. Here was Jesus. The multitudes are coming, right? They're stepping over on each other because of the mass of humanity. And the disciples are watching this whole thing unfold. Thousands of people are, are coming around Jesus. In fact, remember the story where uh, James and John's mother around this time comes to Jesus because they're heading to Jerusalem. And what are they going to do in Jerusalem? Well, they're going to set up the kingdom. And the mom of James and John said, hey, promise that my sons will sit one at your left and one at your right. Look at what's happening. Man, this is exciting. People are stepping all over them to hear Jesus. And Jesus said, hey, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees of hypocrisy. Fear him. Put your focus on him. Keep your eyes on him. What's happening back in Acts chapter 5? Just a few months later, thousands of people are listening to the words of the disciples. In boldness, they're in the streets. 3,000 follow Jesus one day, 5,000 men the next day, thousands of people. They're healing people. They're putting cots out so that maybe if Peter's shadow will come, they'll get healed. You think that can't be a, a, a head rush here? And these words of Jesus are saying, watch out. And, and, and they get arrested, they get into jail for a few hours. He's sitting there in that dark, damp public jail. And I just have to believe what we just read in Luke chapter 12 was coming to their mind. The words of Jesus. Don't fear them. When the crowds start coming, don't look at them. Trust me. Put your focus on me. Depend on me. I'll walk you through it every step of the way. And that's exactly what happened. Peter, with boldness, you put him on a cross, and God raised him from the dead. He's exalted at the right hand of the Father. We're witnesses of that, and so is the Holy Spirit. You tell us, who should we obey? We're going to obey God and not you. Boldness empowered. And they had these very words of Jesus written on their heart, and I think it empowered them. When that angel busted them out of that prison, you go speak everything of the life. They said, you better believe we will. 
And with boldness they went, and they stood before that Sanhedrin, and they spoke with power because they were dependent upon the Holy Spirit. They weren't speaking from behind a mask. They were the real deal. Now let's go back to Acts chapter 5 and wrap this up. Because there's one little quick little paragraph here in Acts. Acts chapter 5. So after all this has happened, they're seething now with rage. They're about to kill him, verse 33. And look what happens in verse 34. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council, gave orders to put the men outside for a short time, you know, to remove them from our midst. And then he said to them, men of Israel, take care that you, what you purpose to do with these men. For some time ago, and then he gives them a little history lesson, some time ago, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. And he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed. Nothing came of it. And then there was this man, Judas of Galilee. He rose up in the days of the census, and, and, and he drew away some people after him, and he too died, and, and all those who followed him, they too scattered. And so in this present case, verse 38, I say to you, stay away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it's going to be overthrown. But if it's of God, you'll not be able to overthrow it, or else you may even be found to fight against God. And verse 40 says, they took his advice, they called the apostles in, they beat them up a little bit, ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, they released them, and what did they do? (laughs) What a great verse, verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. (laughs) Undaunted. Who were they fearing? Where was their focus? It was on him. Who were they depending upon? His Holy Spirit. They had just experienced it. They were part of the teaching of the presence of the life. And nothing was going to stop them. By the way, isn't it it amazing the creativity of God? He uses an angel to release them from prison to free them. Now he uses an enemy one of the members of the Sanhedrin, to set him free. God is in charge, and he loves these people, and he's creative. And whether it's an angel or an enemy, God can do whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it. So what is he telling us this morning? I think it's simply this. In the day and age in which we're living, where is our focus? Who are we focusing on? What are we drawn to? Every day we have to make a choice. What are we going to focus upon? Where are we going to drive our strength? Are we going to push the panic button, focus on what we fear? Because ultimately what we fear we're going to worship. We fear poverty, we're going to worship wealth. We fear health, we're going to worship medicine. You fear loneliness, you're going to worship relationships. What are we fearing? And Jesus says, don't fear those things of the world. Fear him. Put your focus on him. Fear God. And Peter would later write in his epistle, fear the one who you can cast your cares upon because he cares for you. Put your focus on the one who he can count the sparrows. Don't you think he knows you better? 
and loves you more. Put your focus on the one who went to the cross, who paid for your sins, who loves you so infinitely, who knows you so intimately. Trust him. When all the world around us is clamoring for our attention and gripping us sometimes in fear, what in the world is going on in this country? The downward slide into the abyss is so rapid. Who are we to focus on? It was 35 years ago when I made my first trip um, overseas, and it was to India. Never been out of the country before, and I shouldn't even say this. My wife, Lisa, had just given birth to our fourth child. This is horrible to even think about it. She reminds me of it once in a while still. Three little ones, a newborn baby, and I go to India. Well, anyway, the first night there, I'm in the state of Uttar Pradesh, the up northern state in a city called Gorkhpur, and it's like 2 in the morning. I'm not sleeping, jet lag or whatever, and, and, and you can hear it. The wailing of the Hindus in their prayers over here. The crying of the prayers of the Muslim community over here. And the darkness was just palpable. You could reach out and touch it. And there was literally this sense of panic that began to grab me. It was almost like a panic attack. I don't know what it was. And I did one of these things. I don't necessarily recommend it, but it was fun that night. I just grabbed my Bible and opened it up. And my eyes fell upon Psalm 115. Let me read a little bit of it. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Where's the focus? Verse 2 says, Why should the nation say, Where now is their God? And the psalmist writes, Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. This is what I'm reading. Two, three in the morning, with the wailing of the prayers of the Hindus and the Muslims, in the midst of of a country of the land of 330 million gods. Where now is your God? Well, he's in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. And then the psalmist goes on and says, their idols are silver and gold. They're the work of man's hands. They have mouths that they cannot speak. They have eyes that they cannot see. They have ears that they cannot hear. They have noses they cannot smell. They have hands they can't feel. They have feet they can't walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And those who make them would become like them, everyone who trusts in them. And man, I shut that Bible, and I slept like a baby. Why? Because God that night grabbed my little brain in my head and he put it right here on the scriptures that focused on him and he says, fear me. The one who loves you completely. Fear me. I'm the God in the heavens and I do whatever I please. That's what Peter did. That's what James and John did, standing in that Sanhedrin. And folks, that's what God's people have to do today. And we don't cower in fear. We don't worry what other people are going to say or think about us if we speak for truth in a compelling, loving way. We stand for Him. And give glory to Him. He alone is worthy of our fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Father, you know when the sparrow falls and you know everything about me and you still look down in favor.
undeserved favor. Your operating principle, your, your, the way you work with me is always with grace, with kindness. And I pray for each of us here, Father, you'll draw our hearts to you. We may find ourselves even this week in a conversation with a coworker or a fellow student or a, a neighbor, a family member coming up at Christmas time. And we may fear those conversations and not wanting to alienate people and, and all that. But Father, I pray you would infuse us so powerfully with your presence so that your love overflows, but a love that speaks with boldness. We speak the truth in love. And may we stand for you, Father, and fear only you in the days in which we live. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.